to the choir master, according to Lilies, a testimony of Asa, a psalm. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock. You who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth. Before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh, stir up your might and come to save us. Restore us, O God, let your face shine that we may be saved. O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? You have fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure. You make us an object of contention for our neighbors and our enemies laugh among themselves. Restore us, O God of hosts, let your face shine that we may be saved. You brought a vine out of Egypt, you drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. Why then have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? The boar from the forest ravages it and all that move in the field feed on it. Turn again, O God of hosts, Look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted, and for the son whom you made strong for yourself. They have burned it with fire. They have cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face. But let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life and we will call upon your name. Restore us, O Lord God of hosts, let your face shine that we may be saved. Good, good. It's glad to be with you. I'm glad to be with you this morning, those of you who are here and online. And I just want to say thank you to the church and the elders for allowing me to speak from God's word this morning. It is a privilege and honored and humbling. <clears throat> Raise your hand if you've ever broken your phone. That's a lot of people. We need to get some better cases or something. There's a few things we might do when we break our phones. Um, if, it's just, if it's just a crack, cracked screen, we might get it fixed. Or if the screen still works, we'll just wait till the next-gen phone comes out and our contract is up, and then we just get the new one. Or you might break your phone so bad that it's broken beyond repair. There's nothing you can do to fix it. My sister is a little bit older than me. Um, she was the first one to get her phone as a young teenager, back when we had like razors. They were the coolest phones back then. And one day she accidentally dropped her phone in the pool and the screen went out. I don't think there was much like water protection in phones back then. They just go out right away. And the first thing she tried doing for her phone and I'm not trying to throw her under the bus. I probably would have done the same thing. But the first thing she did is she went and plugged her phone in to the charger. And we learned that day that that does not work. The phone was fried. There was nothing you can do to fix it. We tried putting it in a rice bowl. We tried doing many things, but it was too late. It was broken beyond repair. It was good for nothing. And the only thing left to do is just throw the phone out, get a new one. It would be silly if you just kept trying to restore the phone. You'd be told it's not worth it. 
When something is broken beyond repair, it seems hopeless of the idea that it can be restored. And, I, and that idea hits home the most for us when it comes to relationships, right? When we have a relationship that seems broken beyond repair, our hope tank is dry for the restoration, for the idea of restoration. We're tempted to drop it, start new. Many of us have experienced these broken relationships or know somebody who has experienced these broken relationships that seem beyond repair. Many of us have experienced divorce or know someone who's experienced divorce. And even in the process of going through a divorce, resentment and bitterness, it's compounded, right? One party's trying to take more from the other. And by the end, it seems impossible that a divorced couple might turn back to each other. The idea of them coming back together sounds crazy. Or what about the parent-child relationship? Maybe there's a son or daughter who's prodigal with something like drugs. It's one lie after another, and it gets to the point where the bridge is burned. There's just no more trust anymore. The idea of believing that they'll be better this time in the middle of the night, it's just too much to handle. Or maybe there's just constant fighting with the parent and child, and you're just wondering, when is the relationship going to be better? Or maybe there's abuse. Or what about broken friendships? Maybe you had a friend who stabbed you in the back, and there's no, there's no way of imagining that you can turn back towards each other. Whatever it might be, these are proofs that we live in a fallen world, and they are results of the greatest relationship that we've broken that seems beyond repair, and that's our relationship with God. Ever since Adam disobeyed God, we have in our nature a bend to do everything to turn away from him, to want nothing to do with God. And this turning away from him overflows into the rest of our lives. And so the message of Psalm 80 for us is that our relationship with God, the most important relationship, the relationship that influences other relationships, though it seems broken beyond repair, we have hope. Though you may feel like you're sitting here this morning and you feel like you're too far gone for God to bring you back, there is hope. And it's only because of who God is. He, he does not give up. Any hope we have is not in ourselves, but in God. And this is the way that the psalmist in Psalm 80 sees it this morning. So if you're sitting here and you've experienced any of these forms of brokenness, or you feel so far from God that you cannot come back, Psalm 80 is for you. Because Psalm 80 offers the hope that God is faithful to restore his people to himself when it seems like it's impossible. So my big idea, if you're writing notes, is our only hope for restoration is in God's faithfulness. I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll get started. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today, this morning, that you've given us. Lord, there's so many ways that we've turned away from you. 
We've turned towards other things. We've turned towards ourselves for comfort, for satisfaction. Lord, uh, remind us afresh this morning that you are all satisfying. That in you, um, we have no lack. That you are our only hope, Lord. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Your subheading reads, as Al read, uh, to the choir master, according to Lilies, a testimony of Asaph, a psalm. This psalm was a song meant to be sung as a congregation by Israel. We also read that uh, this was written by Asaph. So Asaph was around during the time of King David, and he led the Levites in music as they were moving the Ark of the Covenant from point A to point B. Uh, But this was likely written by Asaph's descendants well after Asaph's time. They were known as Asaph's sons, And they addressed themselves as Asaph because they continued Asaph's legacy as music leaders among Israel and the Levites. So Psalm 80 was likely written during the time of, uh, during the time the northern tribes of Israel, they were being taken over by Assyria. And as this was happening, Judah was looking on this calamity that was taking place before them. It was clear that for years Israel had abandoned their God, turning to idolatry, and so God had turned away from them. In judgment, he's handed them over to their sin and to the Assyrians. And these, the sons of Asaph, they see this, and they're crying out to God to turn back and save. And this plea for God to turn back and save is the refrain in Psalm 80. It's kind of like a chorus in a song. It kind of, a chorus in a song kind of structures the song, how it's how we're going to sing it. And that's what this refrain does. It structures our psalm. And this refrain, it breaks up the psalm into four stanzas. And at the end of each stanza is this uh, refrain that the psalmist ends with. And this refrain, it's a plea for God to act. It is a plea um, that God would restore them and shine the light of his face upon them that they may be saved. So if you have your Bibles open, if you're looking at Psalm 80, the refrains are verse 3. He says, Restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we may be saved. So that's the first stanza, 1 through 3. The second one, 4 through 7. Verse 7 is the second refrain. It's a little bit more descriptive of God. It says, Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. And then verses 14 and 15, I'm going to say it's um, zooming in on the refrain. It's, it's called this a third refrain, describing what, what it would mean for God to restore them. He says, turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted, and for the son whom you made strong for yourself. And lastly, verse 19 is the last refrain, which ends the psalm. It's the the biggest description of God says, Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. So that's how the psalm is structured. My first point is the effects of Israel taking God's presence for granted. Looking at the first two stanzas in one through seven. One of the reasons why I love this psalm so much is because 
um, there's just beautiful imageries, pictures of God and Israel, numerous ones. And so it's, it'd be helpful to look at these. The, the first one we see right out of the gate is, the ver- is in verse 1 describing God as a shepherd who leads his people like a flock. Right? Think of how God led Israel out of Egypt and through the wilderness into the land he promised them. Just as a shepherd is always with their sheep, always cares for them, will never abandon them, the shepherd pulls them back in from wandering, so God cared for Israel in the wilderness. God led his people like a flock. In verses 1 and 2 is this second picture we see after he um, calls God a shepherd. The psalmist says, You who are enthroned upon the cherubim shine forth. Before Ephraim, Benjamin, and Manasseh, stir up your might and come to save us. So this picture, this is a picture of the Ark of the Covenant before Ephraim, Benjamin, and Manasseh. We see this take place in Numbers 2. When Israel wandered through the desert, the Levites were in front carrying the Ark of the Covenant, like like I mentioned. And the Ark, carrying the Ark, it symbolized the presence of God. And behind the Levites were the tribes, um, Ephraim, Benjamin, and Manasseh. This, is, this picture of God, um, the first one is a shepherd, and the second is this, the, the symbol of God enthroned on the ark before his people. They're, the psalmist is emphasizing the presence of God. That's what he's emphasizing, um, is God's faithful presence He's, he's bringing this up because it seems like the presence of God has left them, right? He says, he asks God to, to give ear, he, to listen to them, to shine forth, right? To turn towards them and to shine his presence, his favor on them, and to stir up his might to come and save him. He, he's calling on him to come back and save. The psalmist knows that the thing they need more than anything else is the presence of God. He knows that God is all that they need, and with him, they will have no lack. This is is the psalmist's priority. Do we long for the presence of God in this way? A little bit more of that in a little bit. Then he gets into the first refrain, verse 3. He says, Restore us, O God, let your face shine that we may be saved. Like I said, this is the first of four refrains, and it's asking God for two things. The first is restore us, which is another word for turn us again. It's admitting to the fact that they've turned away from God, and they they want uh, to turn back towards him. And then the second, so um, restore us, so turn us back towards you. And then the second thing he's, he's asking is, let your face shine that we may be saved. So they're asking God for God to turn his face towards them. So it's a double turning. God, he's saying, God, turn us towards you, and you turn towards us. And this is what it means to repent. It is having a heart posture of hating sin and running to God. And we won't, we're not going to be perfect at it. We're going to stumble, but it's the heart posture. It's the attitude. We're going to stumble forward. And this idea, the second 
idea of letting of God's the face shining on us, it takes us back to Numbers 6, 24 to 26, where um, Aaron, the priest, he gave this popular blessing to Israel. We like to call it the Aaronic blessing. Everybody knew it. Everybody loved it. Everybody wanted it. And even today, people would want that. You want to say the Lord, you say the Lord bless you and keep you. They'd be like, yeah, I want that. You've probably heard a song on the radio called The Blessing, where uh, this song sings the, the verses of number six. So number six, 24, 26, goes like this. It's the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you, or in other words, turn his face towards you and give you peace. So the light of God's face shining on you His face towards you means blessing. It means grace. It means favor from God. It means peace with God. And in the midst of the chaos, the Lord shining his face upon them is the greatest thing they needed. And it's the greatest thing we need today. It's greater than anything else in this world. So again, do we long for the presence of God in this way? What is your priority Is it having the posture of your heart? Is it having the posture of your heart turn towards God and God turns towards you? Or is it something else? We are prone to sin. And anything our hearts, anytime our hearts are turned away from God, we run towards idolatry. And so that brings us to our second stanza. So jumping into the second stanza, verses four to seven. Not only has God turned his favor from Israel, but he has turned his anger towards them. He has made their food and drink their tears. He has made them an object of attack for their enemies. And why is this this the case? What's going on? Why are you so angry, Lord? And I think the answer can be found in verse 4. Verse 4, he asks, O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? Why would God be angry with his people's prayers? He is angry with their prayers because they are praying to God while being unfaithful to him. Right? Isaiah quotes, Jesus quotes Isaiah when he says, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. So they claim to worship God while they worship idols. They are committing idolatry against God while they're praying to him like it's all good. It's like committing adultery against a spouse while you're still giving words of love and affirmation to them. Right? They're they're just empty words. Just like the people's prayers to God are empty. They pray to him all while dishonoring him. Idolatry against God is adultery against God. And these prayers, they weren't even prayers of repentance. Because repentance is what it means to turn, God, to turn towards God. And this is what the psalmist is asking for. If they were prayers of repentance, then God would turn. God's very own people took God for granted. Their continued sin for years showed that they wanted nothing to do with God. They turned away from him, 
And so God removed his favor and hedge of protection from them, and they are feeling the effects of their sin. So have you been taking God's favor for granted? Have you been abusing grace? Have you been doing one thing like going to church, praying to God like it's all good, and then turn around and commit continued idolatry? Because idolatry, it doesn't just mean worshiping a carved image. Idolatry is putting anything in the place of God as your treasure, whether it's sex, money, popularity, power, fill in the blank. Sin is idolatry against God, and idolatry is putting anything on the throne of your heart that is not God. God alone deserves our hearts. We will feel the effects of sin in our lives the more we chase after it, and God will feel more and more distant. And maybe you're sitting here already feeling it. So I want to ask you, do you want revival in your heart, in the church, in the world? Do you want that number six blessing? We, we need to turn away from our sin and turn toward God. That's what it means to repent. This is what revival needs is repentance and a dependence on God. And revival needs God to act. And we as a church, as God's people today, ought to continually ask for revival and repentance. To ask for God to move in this fallen world. And this is one of the reasons why we spend a good amount of time in the pastoral prayer. So are, are we engaged during that time? Right? That Psalm 80 has, just, has a refrain, a chorus. So maybe next time, Jim or one of the elders, you guys can add a chorus in the prayer. I don't know. It might be fun. So let's take an oppor- that opportunity to collectively, as God's people, approach God and plead with him to restore for revival, for repentance. And I can stand up here and say all of this because God is faithful to restore when we come to him. He loves us and he is faithful to us so much that he will do the turning when we come to him with nothing in our hands to offer when we come. He's the one that changes our hearts. He changes us from the inside out. Spurgeon has a line. I read this the other day had to add it, has a line from his sermon on Psalm 80. I love it. It says, Seek God that you may return and experience the loveliness of Jesus in your eyes so that you may know more and more of your loveliness in his eyes. This is the only hope the psalmist has, that God's love never fails and he is the one to do the turning. And God is able. In verse 6, when the enemies of Israel are surrounding them, The psalmist adds in his refrains, verse 7, right, that little bit more description of God in verse 7, that that he is the God of hosts, right? Or as Chris Tomlin would say, the God of angel armies. He, He is able even to save when everything around you might try to say otherwise. God is able and God is faithful to keep us. This is our hope. So we can come to him. And this brings us to our second point. The Lord is faithful to his vine. So these, focusing on the last two stanzas, 8 through 19. The last two stanzas, beginning at verse 8 to the end, the psalmist changes the imagery uh, to Israel as a vine 
and God as a vine dresser. And then we see another imagery or picture uh, of Israel as a son and God as a father who's raising up his son. So you see these pictures of a shepherd, a vine dresser, a father. These are all pictures of someone who cares for, who nourishes, who raises up what belongs to them as their own possession. And this vine that God had brought out of Egypt, um, drove out the nations, planted it, this vine is Israel. God had chosen Israel and cared for them like a vine. When Israel took the land God gave them, and they followed God under King David and Solomon, they were a blessing to all those around them. Verses 10 and 11, the mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. They were a blessing. But not long after these kings, things changed. Verse 12, why have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? The boar from the forest ravages it, and all that move on the field feed on it. So we read that, we're like, what happened for these things to change? It's what we already talked about. It's what has always happened. Israel, they continue to turn away from their God. And I was amazed at how much the prophets in the Old Testament, they talked about, um, they used this imagery of Israel as a vine. Isaiah 5, Jeremiah 2, Ezekiel 15. They speak of Israel as a vine. And for the sake of time, I'll just read you Isaiah 5, 1 to 7. It's not up on the thing, but you can read it later. Um, Isaiah speaks of the wickedness of God's vine despite all that God has done for them. Let me, verse 1, let me sing for my beloved. This is Isaiah speaking of God. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it, and he looked for it to yield wild grapes, but it yielded, or he, he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now this is God speaking to his people, and now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be prune or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain, no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. So as God's vine, Israel was supposed to bear fruit for God. They were supposed to reflect God's goodness, but instead they bore wild grapes like a diseased plant. And second chance after second chance, after all that God has done for them, after all the care he put into them as his vine, there was nothing else he could do. They still bore wild grapes. If anybody, if any of us, I'm not a, 
I don't have a garden or anything in my backyard, but if any of us had a plant like this, we would probably just pull it out of the ground and throw it away. But God is faithful. We are like Israel. Like Israel, we are all created to be a vine for God, to bear fruit, because we are all made in his image in this world to reflect his glory. But instead, in our sin, we do everything that is opposite of him. Every, every wickedness we do, he hates, we do it. What we all deserve is to be rooted out of the ground like a weed. But, this is the good news, the psalmist still has hope that God is merciful and he can change our hearts, that we can bear fruit for him. The psalmist pleads with God in verses 14 and 15. He says, turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted, and for the son whom you made strong for yourself. He's pleading with God to remember that this is his vine. God, this is your vine. Remember it. Don't give up on your vine. And in, the, in another image, it's a, it's a more, more personal picture. His son, Lord, this is your son that you've raised up for yourself. Remember all that you've done for your son in raising him. Remember him. The psalmist trusts that God will remain faithful to his vine, to his son. But in verse 18, he also believes that his people, Israel, they will believe that they will be faithful and not turn away from from God either. There's going to be a double turning in faithfulness. He says, verse 18, then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life and we will call upon your name. And so I, I, I had to ask the question, how is it after all of these years of Israel turning away from God, is the psalmist confident to say they will finally turn toward God and not turn away? How is it they will finally call upon his name and have life? And the psalmist sees it in verse 17. But let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life and we will call upon your name. And the hope the psalmist sees is God's hand, meaning God's favor, it be on the man of his right hand. This immediate context means Israel. We read it, we have to see it means Israel and And it means that God is the one to do the final changing and saving. But this word is a singular term for man. It is hope in this singular man as the better representative. Does the psalmist look forward and have hope and say, then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life and we will call upon your name. So we need a better son of man. We need a better vine in our place. And this better son, this better son of man, this better vine is Jesus. It's Jesus Christ. In John 15, Jesus tells his disciples, I have it up on the slides. Yep, there it is. I am the true vine. Jesus is the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes 
that it may bear more fruit. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. So that Jesus, Jesus is the one we must put our faith in to have favor and peace with God. The, the refrain we keep seeing in Psalm 80, restore us, O God of hosts, let your face shine that we may be saved. Jesus is the one that makes this refrain possible to sing. He is the one that makes it possible. Knowing and delighting in Christ is the light of God's face. 2 Corinthians 4, 6, For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. John 1, 4, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Believe in Christ. Believe in him. It's in him that we have the number six blessing. It's in him the Lord's face shines upon us. And in him, verse 18 is true. We have life and a new joy that we finally turn away from our sin and turn toward our God without turning away. Our our heart posture is towards God. And we bear fruit in God, for God, that he delights in. He delights in our fruit that we bear for him. And I don't know about you, but I want to please my father. It's a good feeling. I want to bear fruit for my father. Abiding in Christ, we get to please please him. When we abide in the vine. And that, that that is a greater comfort and joy to know that we please God in Christ than anything else in this world. We can do this because we abide in Christ. And this is possible because the cross redeems what was broken. At the cross, our broken relationship with God is redeemed. We are forgiven of our sin, and we are at peace with God. What seems broken beyond repair is repaired at the cross. And I truly believe when we see the cross for what it really is, and we see the love of Christ, it's, it's going to overflow in our lives. And as much as it's possible with us, we can begin to see peace and healing in our relationships around us that seem broken beyond repair. I know life is messy, but it takes one to begin healing. The cross redeems what was broken. So my conclusion is abide in Christ. It is by him can we turn to God and God has turned toward us. If you're walking away with something, that'd be a good one to walk away with. So if you're a believer this morning, if you profess Christ, continue to fix your eyes on Christ. It's the light of his face that we are after. And even when life seems painful, 
abide in him even more. In those times, God is doing the most pruning. Pruning hurts. It hurts. I was cutting branches off my lemon tree the other day, and I'm like, I'm sorry, but you're going you're gonna to produce more lemons. We've got to do this. It's worth it. We have to abide. If you're not a Christian, if you're an unbeliever here this morning, don't believe in the lie that you've turned so far away from God that you cannot be turned back. God has gone to unfathomable depths to make a dead branch alive and full of fruit and have all joy and peace. He's gone to unmeasurable lengths to find his sheep. He loves his children. He loves his sheep. He loves his vine. And the cross proves it. Look to the cross. Believe in Christ and you will be forgiven of sin. You will bear much fruit. You will have a newfound joy greater than anything else in this world. I don't want you to be at enmity with God. In verse 16, Israel's enemies are perishing at the rebuke of God's face. Do you see that? We're seeing how the, the shining the light of God's face is a good thing. There's, there can be a bad thing about God's face. There's a, in staff meeting, Mal's like, smiley face, frowny face. I don't want you to perish at the rebuke of God's face. I want you to have life and favor beholding his face on that day. And one last thing, I, I mentioned it earlier, but I truly believe that our vertical um, relationships, or excuse me, our vertical restoration with God, it overflows into our horizontal relationships with others. I truly believe that. If God is able to make peace between us and him, how much more are we able to have peace with one another by him? I know life can be messy. I know it feels like there's a hundred hoops to jump through restoring relationships and we have each other to help each other. But we need to have patience. And he gives us that too. Ask for wisdom. Ask for patience. Be persistent in prayer. We need to trust in him and put our hope in him and believe that he is able. He is able and he has done it in Christ. So come to him. Let's pray.